It's Friday the 11th of December. Welcome to our afternoon sport deep dive. I'm Tim Gilbert and I'm joined by, drumroll, Shane Lee. How are you, my friend? I have had a nice week. My daughter Zara graduated from primary school, so I've had all things mass and graduation dinners, mate, so I've been busy this week. Yeah, you feel blessed. I could just feel it. <laughs> um, we've got Johnny Stephenson and Jody Hawkins is joining us as well, General Manager of the Sydney Sixers. It's afternoon sport. Let's get going. Okay, let's get into a few of these topics because there's quite a bit to talk about. I just can't believe that Big Bash 10 is underway. And and with that, I I, I remember when, I think it was Mark Taylor, we were back working at Channel 9, he said, oh, there's a Big Bash about to start. And here we are a decade on, Shane. Yeah, 10 years, it's it's gone like that, has it? It's just gone by. It, It was amazing. When it first started, people weren't sure about the format. But it is a major part now of, of our summer, and our, particularly our summer of cricket. Yeah, yeah. The WBBL, we saw the Thunder win that at North Sydney Oval. And, and last night, the Sydney Sixers, of course, Brett, your brother, played for the Sydney Sixers uh, in their first few years. And they went down to the Hurricanes at the uh, former Bell Reeve Oval. I think they call it Bloodstone Arena now. They do, uh, yeah, the Hurricanes scoring 178 first, and then the Sixers were, I think, one for 118, and then capitulated, uh, losing five wickets for 44 runs. So, yeah, not a great start for the Sixers, but a really good start for the Big Bash. Yeah, we'll talk to uh, Jody Hawkins, who's the general manager of the Sixers, shortly, not only about them, but about, uh, you know, women's sport in general. Just just one moment in that game last night, Jordan Silk took the most remarkable grab. He, it, it wasn't out, but he dived over the boundary rope, and he was like John Dyson was back at the SCG all those years ago, managed to throw the ball back. So he saved it from a six, but it was uh, just athleticism. It was a bit like some of those wingers and the way they score tries. Now, Steve Smith has come out talking about the whole captaincy thing. He has, and it's, um, look, his exile from captaincy expired in March, um, and then the snub after you know, Finch was injured and Wade took the captaincy um, in the T20s. It was an interesting comment. Uh, Leah came out and said there's a bit of a process and Smith has actually responded to that saying, well, I'm not really sure what that process is. So he's always said, I'll do the best thing by the team. Um, but it just appears to me that he just wants to get on with batting. He's very happy with the set, current setup. He seems to be very, very happy with both um, the test captain and the shorter version of the game's captains. Um, so I think he's just happy to get on with it. But yeah, a little bit of confusion within the ranks there. With injury, Warner out, Pekofsky, uh, you know, form problems for Joe Burns. Usman Khawaja's name's been mentioned as a possible uh, return to test cricket. Isn't it amazing? Only at two weeks ago, we're talking about one spot. Who will take it, Burns or Pekofsky? Now we're saying we're going to pull someone out of the depths of, uh, of, of almost retirement um, from Test cricket. Kawaja, would he do a good job? I, I think he would. Um, he's a class act, but it is a real backward step for the selectors. So, you know, it's all going to depend on this next game that they play before the Test. Well, there's an opportunity for a few players here with this three-day game going on. Yeah, definitely. So Harris, 25 not out in the last three-day game. He'll be trying to put his hand up. And then Kawaja as well and Pekulski. So... They're definitely not going to try and move around Wade to make room for Green. So, yeah, we'll see how this game goes. But really, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on this. All right, let's make our way to Hobart and talk to the general manager of the Sydney Sixers, Jody Hawkins. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good, good. Uh, it was a, an interesting contest last night. Your guys, they looked like they were cruising at one point, then it all fell apart. 
Yeah, I think we might have just missed our call on the power play, to be fair, um, and lost a little bit of momentum towards the end of the game. So a good lesson to learn first up. I think we were going to be pretty happy to walk away with one from two of our starting matches. So let's see how we go again on Sunday. Jody, Vince looked good at top of the order there. Uh, yeah, Vinny, um, surprisingly, like he's only been out of quarantine for four or five days. So um, he looks really good, actually. He's really back into the swing of it. Hasn't played a lot of competitive cricket in the last couple of months, just with everything going on with COVID. So um, he's come out in some really great form, which we're delighted about. In your role as general manager, Jody, how has that whole thing been? Obviously, uh, yeah, Australia is in such a better state than many other parts of the world. But, you know, James Vince coming in from the United Kingdom and, and, uh, and various other protocols that have needed to be followed. Oh, look, it's been a, a logistical nightmare. I won't lie about it. Um, I've actually just received a text message that the charter from South Africa bringing the next batch of overseas players in is about to land. And I think we're all that excited that it's actually come off. We can't quite believe the game actually happened last night. So, yeah, the logistics have been interesting. It's it's also been um, really critical for us to communicate with our players, especially the overseas guys this year. We had Tom Curran pull out because of pretty much bubble fatigue um, and it's been really difficult to explain what the situation here looks like that once you get through that quarantine period we're living a relatively normal existence um, in these hubs so we're allowed to to eat outdoors we're allowed to leave the hotel um, and and that's been really hard to sort of convey but I think you know for those overseas players who are here now they really do recognize that once they're out of that quarantine period it, it's pretty good condition to be working in and we're just really excited to keep the tournament rolling now. Yeah, Jody, speaking about being able to move on the fly, I suppose, with Moses out for the three-day game, Daniel Hughes comes in as captain. How's, how's he going leading the men there? Uh, look, Dan's been super impressive, actually. He captained for a short period last year when Moses was uh, on paternity leave. Um, he's had a bit of experience. The one thing about this yep. group is that it's full of leaders. Um, you know, it's not just Dan, it's it's Dan Christian, it's uh, Jordan Silk. And look, that leadership team and the way that Moses has built that leadership team around him is a massive credit to Moses, but also to those boys. Um, and Dan Hughes has just done an incredible job. And that comes down a lot to the fact that he's just such a calm influence over this squad. He's one of those leaders who brings people together. So it's been really nice to watch. Last but definitely not least, the growth of the women's game, Jody, has been amazing, hasn't it? Been wonderful. We saw it culminate in the final with your Sydney Cousins or enemies, the Thunder win the win the competition. But yeah, it really has grown wonderfully, hasn't it? Beautifully. Yeah, it's um, it's it's one of those things where back, you know, what was it, six years ago now, um, when we launched the WBBL, you know, we had great dreams for it, but to see it come to fruition and to see how well that tournament's doing. It's such a great feeling after all the work that we've been through. And for me, I guess in WBBL 4, when we were at Dremoyne Oval for the final, we were able to put the sold out sign up. Um, That was such an incredible moment, really a tipping point for us. We knew we were doing the right thing and we're on the right track. So, um, you know, there's still a long way to go with the WBBL. You know, the dream is to be playing in the big venues and, um, and first, we probably, the first step is to get those finals into the big venues. Um, and I think the appetite there is really growing, but, you know, we can't be complacent. We need to make sure that we continue to push to grow and invest to grow that specific league because it's doing wonders, not just for women's cricket, but women's sport. Um, I think the more profile any women's sport get, it lifts everyone up. So 
there are some incredibly talented, not just senior players and the Elise Perrys and the Elisa Healy's, but some of the girls coming through, like Phoebe Litchfield is a superstar, Hannah Darlington from the Thunder, you know, Stella Campbell and Hayley Silver-Holmes at the Sixers. There's some amazing young talent coming through and to give them this platform to perform on is just, it's an incredible experience and it'll really put Australian women's cricket on the map for a long time. There's a there's a lot of amazing young girls who are going to fill some of those Australian spots in years to come. Yeah, Jay, having two young daughters, it's great for them to have some real positive role models out there. So it's a, great great to see the girls doing so well. Yeah, it's amazing. I've got two nephews who um, insist on their their shirts have to be signed by everyone, Aunty Jody, <laughs> not just the men. And I love that because yeah, that's good. the generational change we're looking for. So it's nice to see that it's actually having that impact. Yeah, well, my daughter and and both my sons uh, watched the, watched the final. One of them went to it. So yeah, it is. It's certainly on the move, and it's exciting to watch. And uh, congratulations, Jody, on what you've achieved in your role so far. And hopefully, we'll talk to you over the summer as as time rolls on. Uh, and all the best for Sunday's game. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jody. Great to chat. Coming up on the show, Johnny Stephenson and that drug test. Wait till you hear one of his experiences. Afternoon sport and uh, our man, he's here every Wednesday and Friday. John Stephenson, how are you? Yes, Timmy. Yes, Shane. I love this time of my day getting to chat to you guys. All right, let's talk a little sport. Shana Jack, this is this an interesting story, this, isn't it? Um, because uh, she was of the understanding that, you know, her, pun- her punishment wasn't going to be as heavy as first thought. And now the old Asada, which has got now a new name, I think it's the Australian Sports Commission, is saying that they're going to appeal that decision. Man, this is the ugly head of drugs in sport. And unfortunately, it's the mud sticks, right? And I feel sorry for Shane. I watched the, she was recently on this SAS show on Channel 7 and they, they sort of touched on how the drug sort of incident came out and how she felt about it. And watching this young lady speak, I can't really believe that she's innocent in all this. Um, but unfortunately, once you're hit with a positive drug test or an accusation that there could be some issues with any form of drug testing, people automatically think you're guilty. So this poor girl has been, been going through this trial and tribulation since 2018, um, and now for it to be, again, be, be appealed, I, I do feel for it, Tim. John, leaving Shana Jack um, to the side for now, do you think the Olympic sports are as clean as they've been in a long time? I always said this in Australia. I reckon we're one of the cleanest nations, if not the cleanest nation in the world. It's the way we conduct ourselves, especially Olympic sports. You know, the commercialized big sports, I can't really comment on that, but my experience going to three Olympics, I I think we do a very good job on competing clean and fair. This is why when an athlete wins a medal Olympic Games, it is so bloody big because we have a clean nation. And unfortunately, they're competing against other nations that will do anything to win. And I'm not just blaming the nations. A lot of times in, say, track and field, it's the individual that that commits the offence. But there has been times, and we've known, say, back in the day with the Chinese swim team, there's been a number of nations that actually um, systematically, you know, encourage drug taking, like we've seen with the Russia and them being banned from athletics. So... Um, mm. Yeah, I think that I think that's something we should always remember. Look, I've been through this testing uh, a number of times. I was playing cricket. It's reasonably intimidating. Um, how did you find it? I'll tell you, I'll tell you guys a real funny story. Um, as you know, testing is something which which happens straight after a competition. And and I remember very vividly at, at Sydney Olympic Park, I had a tester one day. And you know, when they test you, they it's not you not you go to the toilet, you provide a sample, and you walk out. They actually need to see you physically pee. 
So you normally get a guy that sort of joins you in the cubicle um, and sort of third umpire as your junk. Me. He's right there in the junk. Like, he's there, Tim. He's right there. I mean, he's getting splashes. He's getting everything. <laughs> That's intimidating. It's very intimidating. And yeah. I used to get a bit of stage fright because to have a, to have a grown man sort of just really <laughs> near my junk like that used to sort of throw me off. But what made it even more creepy, he, just, he sort of saw that I had a bit of stage fright. So he goes to me, he goes, um what normally makes, you know, guys pee from my experience if I just whistle for them. So he, <laughs> <laughs> he just to whistle to me while he was trying to make me pee. And I just remember thinking, what is my life? I'm like, do I really need this Olympic gold medal right now? Like, I have lost every sort of private control that I thought I did have. So I used to get tested at 6.30 in the morning, you know, 7.30 at night. Anyway, that, it was random testing whenever they wanted. And yes, you had to you know, relieve yourself of urine in front of somebody, no matter when, and blood. It got to a point where they're taking blood and urine. You know, sometimes I'd get it twice, maybe three times in the week. So um, it's a very serious procedure. USADA, WADA, they do a great job in trying to make the sport clean. And they're closing in slowly on the, on the cheat. But unfortunately, man, um, when there's power, there's corruption. And when there's money, there's corruption. And people are always going to yeah. try and find a way to find that loophole. It certainly puts a variation on whistle while you work, doesn't it? There's, that would be difficult. Now, look, look, let's change subjects uh, because, look, you've sort of changed sports. You're a racing car driver, you know, since being an athlete. You've dabbled in a few things. We've seen guys go to golf, uh, like Draper. Uh, Scott Draper was a, a former tennis player, uh, tried his hand at professional golf. Dean Jones, God rest his soul, tried his hand at golf. Now Big Sam Groff. Now Big, I've seen Big Sam hit the ball. Hits it a long way, but um, when I, well, this is when I last saw him, he sort of, the control probably wasn't quite there. So he, he's obviously zeroing in and practicing. He, he's thinking he might uh, give golf a go. Yeah, I like this story, Tim. I saw that as well uh, this morning. I think it's great. And a lot of the times, the psychology of a professional athlete, once you've reached the heights, and Sam got to a pretty decent level, I don't think he fulfilled his full potential due to injuries, but you develop mentally. And the reason why I went to motor racing is mentally I feel like I can still be an Olympic gold medalist, but physically my body couldn't keep up. And I think now Sam has found a sport where where physically he's able to do not feel agony and pain that he felt playing tennis, but he knows he has the mental aptitude to apply to another sport. And I think it's it's great when an athletes do this. I'm, I'm interested to watch this space to see how he goes. I think he'll do quite well. Yeah, I wish him well. He's a good guy. And look, like as I say, I've I've seen him smash the cover off it. He's uh, I think he's been a single-digit marker for a while, so all power to him. 100%. He's a gifted man and he's strong boy so um yeah it'll be a waste if he didn't play golf to be honest i still have these dreams sometimes that i was an olympian you know and like it uh, and it happens sometimes periodically obviously a little bit of logic goes into the thought was it weightlifting was it hammer throw but i think what i might do is become a break dancer i might become the over 100 kilo break dancer they've got to have it in weight classes don't they I cannot believe the break dancing i, I i'm still baffled by it and everywhere i go out people <laughs> asking me about it yeah so would it rule out at age 38 that I can go to Olympic Games and break dance? Surely it doesn't rule that out. I'm going to be better as a volunteer on the hot dog stand. Look, always good to talk. We'll wrap again next Wednesday, hey? No, it's nice to be. Thanks, Shane. And yeah, look forward to it, guys. Have a great uh, week. The End of the Storm, directed by James Erskine, is a documentary that takes us into the world of Liverpool Football Club and their 2019-20 win of the EPL title for the first time in 30 years. And we have decided to give our magician of a producer, Dan McHugh, the opportunity to conduct an interview. And Dan had a chat with James Erskine. 
James Erskine, welcome to Afternoon Sport. First of all, can you tell us about The End of the Storm and why you made it? Well, well, The End of the Storm is a film that explores last season, Liverpool winning the Premier League, how they won it and the obstacles that they had to overcome. It explores it from both the inside and the outside of the club. It has extensive interviews with Jurgen Klopp and his journey thus far, his struggles, and with many of the players and also with fans around the world from Auckland to Detroit to Calcutta, you know, explaining their journeys and their connection with with the club. So it's a celebration of a season, but it's much deeper than that. It's also a celebration of football and what connects us and binds us in humanity in the year of the pandemic. You do really get a sense of that emotion throughout the film. Can you just explain what the significance of the title is? At the end of the storm is from You'll Never Walk Alone, you know, the extraordinary song which is sung by Liverpool fans uh, every game just before kickoff. It's an incredibly moving song. And of course, particularly this season, I mean, we came up with a title before the pandemic hit uh, because it felt it had been a 30 year wait and Liverpool had seemed to have gone through so much, you know, it seemed to be such a struggle. But when the pandemic hit, obviously that sort of multiplied the impact of the, of the title. You know, here at the end of the storm, we can have joy again. So you've you've brought up You'll Never Walk Alone. So I need to jump into asking you about the music because it seems like it's really important to the film. And you've even got Lana Del Rey to do a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone, which sort of pops up here and there and right at the end it becomes very poignant. First of all, how did you con her into doing that? And secondly, why did music need to play such a, a big part in the documentary? Well, music plays a big part in, in all my films. And I think it's about connecting emotion through playing with the words to create story that's not necessarily people speaking, you know, that people can feel. And I knew at the beginning that I wanted to set out a soundtrack that was dominated by female vocalists rather than by male voices. I knew there'd be a lot of male voices, obviously all the players. And so, you know, I picked a number of uh, new artists. There's a brilliant song called Liverpool at the beginning of the film sung by a girl called Chelsea Grimes, which I got on, sent to me on a demo. And I was like, we have to use this. This has to be the beginning of the film. But obviously the icing on the cake was securing the services of Lana Del Rey to sing You'll Never Walk Alone. Uh, and that happened because... We were looking for who could be the right person to ask. And we found on Instagram, I think it was a picture of Lana at Anfield with a red scarf on. And my music supervisor knew her manager. So she called him up and said, hey, what do you think? We're making this film about Liverpool. And fortunately, he turned out to be probably the biggest red on the planet. In fact, he's such a red. He, he grew up in Liverpool and he literally went to school with Paul Dalglish, Kenny Dalglish's uh, uh, son. So Wow. Obviously, we all bleed red, but he bleeds double red, if that's possible. And so we worked with him to sort of come up with a way of getting Lana involved in a way that we would then release this song as a single, you know, for charity. And, you know, that was the way to, to sort of make it all come together for a small documentary. You know, we didn't have a, you know, she normally sings songs if she's going to sing from a movie for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which we, which we certainly, <laughs> certainly didn't have. Hey, um, you just said that you bleed red, but I've done a little bit of research and I heard that you're a Manchester City fan. Yeah, um, and yeah. some might say yeah. that Man City and Liverpool, in, you know, in recent times have a bit of a rivalry going on. Do you reckon that had an effect on the way you approached making the movie? Uh, not really. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Klopp. And, you know, of course, I don't cut my veins open so they stay blue. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that, 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 that's the way. But, yeah, I was, I'm a big Man City fan, but... Actually, I, I think it helps in a way. I think it's sort of, you know, if you're a real Liverpool fan, what do you choose to leave out? You know, you're, you're going to pick your own favourites. Whereas if you're, if you're a fan of, a, of another team, you know, you can look at it a little bit more 
you know, a bit more Cody. I, I made a film before about Sachin Tendulkar, you know, the Indian cricketer, um, you know, and I was invited to do that by the Indian producers specifically because he said no Indian can make this film because it's just it's just too emotional, you know, and actually, you know, that's probably true. You know, you need to be able to find a, an outside voice to retell someone's story. Absolutely. So you mentioned Jürgen. So 30 years, three decades, it's a really long time for Liverpool to wait for, you know, this league title. Your film really focuses on Jurgen Klopp and, and his passion. Do you reckon it's that passion that helped Liverpool finally take the trophy? I think Klopp's passion has made a massive difference. I think it makes a difference to the players. But I think to think of Klopp only as passion, it's almost like he hides behind his passion. You know, he's, he's really intelligent. He's kind of changed the way that football is being played, you know. He has his own dynamic system that he uses and he is in, he's a tactical genius as well as a, a sort of man-manager genius. So I think the reason why you you love Klopp, and I love Klopp, he's like the ultimate football fan's dream manager, you know, because he cares even more than you do. His success as a manager is it's in the brain, you know. I think the most important thing about this movie and even the club itself is, is probably the community and the fans of Liverpool that, that surround it. And there's huge numbers of fans from across the planet. And the film actually does go to visit people from, you know, China. And I think there's a Japanese guy and there's someone in New Zealand. So obviously there's something very special about this club, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting with Liverpool, you know, that, of course, they had great glory days in the past. They're great, uh, uh, you know... Managers, the period of the 80s, all those European Cups they won. So they've got a really storied history. And I think that was interesting. You know, the fans that we tried to find around the world had not been fans for the last five years since Jürgen came in. They were largely fans who'd been fans for 30 years. And I think, you know, it's true that, you know, what attracts fans, particularly from around the world to a club, is stories of glory, you know. But what's interesting is those fans stuck it out, you know, through the years of pain as well. So I think there's a richness to following people's life's journey you know the indian guy he says now i could die happy you know and to f- finally feel like my belief paid off you know it's like you know you've died and gone to hell if, you, if you're if you're really religious and you die and there's a heaven you're probably going to feel pretty pretty happy with yourself you know you know so it's it's that sense of fulfillment i do have to commend you on the film it's a great documentary and i believe it's only showing for a short while here in australia at event cinemas this weekend across friday saturday sunday so do make sure you go out and see it james erskine thank you very much for joining us on afternoon sport all right thank you so much That's it for Afternoon Sport today. We'll be with you Monday to Friday every week. Hit subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss it. A big thank you goes out to our guest today, John Stephenson, Jody Hawkins, James Erskine. Thank you to our sponsors, O'Brien Beer and the wonderful Spartan Group. And, of course, thank you to our podcast producer. He is really, when you think about it, he is what, well, Einstein was to science. He is to podcast. Dan McHugh. We'll be back on Monday afternoon with your daily dose of sport. Do you reckon he is a bit of an Einstein of podcast, Shane? With a dodgy haircut. We'll see you soon. We'll see you then, guys.